Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, hey, it's really good for uh, all of you to be here. I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, if you haven't been with us for a while, we uh, have, as you see here on the screen, a theme, a spiritual theme every year. And this year, our spiritual theme is return to your first love. Uh, That's a message that Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And it really is a message of invitation that God is inviting this church to pursue a relationship with him that had, they just sort of wandered. They had drifted from what God had really desired and wanted for them. And to help us in this study, we, uh, we've been working th- our way through the Gospel of John very slowly. Uh, we're not very far into the Gospel because there's so much here. And uh, this morning I will be in John chapter 2. I've entitled this message, The Third Temple. The Third Temple. And I want to begin by reading from John 2, verses 13 through 21. Passage says this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak personally to each one of our hearts. Lord, you know what we need to hear from you today. And Lord, I just pray that we would have open hearts, willing to hear and respond to what the Spirit is saying to us as your church in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, according to the gospel record, this is the first time Jesus made his appearance at the temple in Jerusalem after he began his public ministry. And as you look at this uh, episode, you have to think, well, what a way to introduce yourself to the, to the religious leaders in Israel. Uh, this is quite, a, quite an image and quite a presentation. I don't know what mental image you have of Jesus. I know we all have something in our minds of what we think of when we see Jesus. Um, but this, uh, this particular scene certainly challenges our perception of Jesus as the gentle shepherd. This was a deliberate and calculated act of mayhem on Jesus' part. I want you to use your imagination a little bit with me this morning. Can you just see Jesus walking into this temple area? It's a large area where people would gather and congregate to purchase their offerings, their sacrifices. 
Jesus walks into this thing and, and, and he sees all these crowds of people. You can hear the clanging of the coins on the table as people are exchanging their Roman currency, which had Caesar's image on it and was profane. It couldn't be presented to the temple as a tithe. They had to exchange it for currency that the Jewish people actually minted. So they had to change this coinage in order to give these tithes and offerings to the temple. So he's hearing all the clanging of the money going on, people bartering for the exchange rate. In fact, that still goes on in Israel today. And then he sees all the cattle and the sheep and the birds in cages, and it's just, it is a marketplace. He watches all of this, and then he sits down, finds some cords, and begins to fashion a whip. Now, that's an image for you. And you can just begin to think what's going on in his mind. He knows exactly what he's about to do. He's about to create mayhem. After this whip is fashioned, he gets this all put together. He stands up and he begins thrashing the cattle, driving the sheep out, turning tables over, scattering coins. Can you imagine people running, trying to get out of a stampede, out of the way of these cows and sheep and all these animals? What a scene. I don't think that was a very politically correct thing to do. And it certainly got the Jewish leader's attention. They demanded of him that, they would, that he would show him some miraculous sign to prove that he had the authority to do such a thing. But what we notice in this scene is that Jesus had a righteous anger. He was enraged that something had come between God and people who wanted to worship God. There was all of this commerce and trade going on. There was a barrier, an economic barrier, a religious barrier that had been constructed. The timing of this event, I think, is also very, very significant as it was only a few days before the Passover, and this was the time of year that all males were required to appear in Jerusalem and to worship God. It was a time when they were to remember the fact that God had miraculously delivered Israel from Egypt in around 1500 B.C. Moses led them out. And the purpose of God delivering Israel from Egypt was to bring them to Mount Sinai. And it's at that place God proposed to the children of Israel and said, Would you be my special people? I want to have a relationship with you, an intimate personal relationship with you, so all the other nations of the world can look at you and your nation and realize that I am your God and there is no other. And the people will be drawn to me because they see how I bless you. Israel said, we do. We voluntarily enter that marriage relationship with you. They actually had a wedding feast. Top Mount Sinai, 70 elders went up there, Moses and Aaron. And that union was joined at that point. Israel became God's chosen people. But as we look at this passage in John 15, we notice that 1,500 years later, that relationship had gone in a very negative direction. The place where people were coming to worship God, it had degenerated into a religious formality, and it had no substance to it. It was a marketplace, and zeal for Jesus 
the zeal that Jesus had for his house literally consumed him. The, the disciples, they remembered that scripture. They're watching Jesus do all of this and they're thinking, what in the world is he doing? I think they were probably confused too. This was really not what they had in mind that the Messiah would do. But as Jesus is thrashing these sheep and cattle and you know, causing this stampede and confusion, they, they remembered the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered that scripture from Isaiah. They got the scripture right, but they were thinking of the wrong house. When you look at the study of the temple in Scripture, the temple is a fascinating one. It actually begins in the book of Exodus and it continues through Revelation chapter 21. The subject of the temple. It's fascinating. It actually begins when Israel wandered in the Sinai wilderness and God told Moses to construct a tabernacle. It was a tent, a movable building. And it was very specifically Created. In other words, there were specific dimensions to it, certain colors, certain kinds of wood and fabric and materials. There was the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the outer court where there was the bronze altar and the bronze laver. All of these things were very, very deliberately chosen by God. They were in, Moses actually saw a vision of what he was to build on Mount Sinai. And God told Moses to construct this tabernacle for, where sin, sacrifices for sin could be offered. But more importantly, it was a place where God could meet with Moses and Aaron and speak to the leaders. In Exodus 25.8 and 29.45, God said this, And let them make me a sanctuary. And listen why. That I may dwell among them. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. If you look at how Israel was to camp, God specifically said, now I want the tabernacle to be right in the middle and three tribes on each side. I want them to surround this building, this construction, this tent. I want to be in the midst, the very center of my people Israel. 500 years later, King David, he became king and decided that a tent was certainly no place for Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, he thought, you know, we got to do better than this. And so he decided to build a magnificent temple that would be a fitting place for people to worship the Lord. The prophet Nathan said, sounds like a great idea, but at the, in the nighttime, God spoke to Nathan and said, you go back to David and you tell him the following, First Chronicles 28, 3 through 6, God said, you shall not build a house for my name. Because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Your son Solomon shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. So this first temple, Solomon did build it. David was very careful before he died to collect all the building materials that would be necessary. He drew up the blueprint, the plans. He did everything but build it. Solomon then followed the blueprint, he took the plan and all the materials, and he built a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was on par with the pyramids of Egypt, a magnificent temple. In fact, uh, if you look at the details of how it was constructed, when you walked into the holy place and the holy of holies, floor, ceiling, and walls were all overlaid with solid gold. 
So the light, you can imagine the candlelight in that holy of holies. The whole thing would have been radiating the glory of God. That was the image. That was the picture that he wanted people to see, that it was a holy, sacred place. When Solomon finished the building project, he gathered all the people in front of the temple, and he had a prayer of dedication that's recorded in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3. And it said, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. God moved into the house. His very manifest presence moved in. In the tabernacle, his presence was represented by a cloudy pillar that stood over the tabernacle. By day and by night, it was a pillar of fire. That cloud represents the very presence of God. Same thing happened here in Solomon's temple. God filled the house. Fire was present. And his glory filled the building. So this first temple was a holy place of worship. And God's presence was in the midst of his people. But this, was, this high point in Israel's spiritual history was short-lived. Within one generation, the children of Israel began to engage in idolatry and in the immoral practices of the heathen. So for the next 400 years, God sent prophets to the priests, to kings, and to the people saying, Repent. Return to me. Don't worship these false gods of the heathen. They can never save you. Repent and return. God was pleading with his estranged wife, saying, return to me. We were meant to have this relationship, but you've gone after other lovers. There were a few brief moments of revival or spiritual renewal during the time of Hezekiah, King Josiah, but those were, they didn't last for very long. The very next generation that came along, they returned back to the ways of the heathen. So it came finally to the point in 600 or so B.C. that Israel had lost their way. All hope of them repenting and returning to the Lord had come and gone, and so God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to march in the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and he destroyed the city, the temple, burned the city, and he raised it to the ground, turned it into a place of rubble. But it's very interesting to me that before God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to go into Jerusalem and destroy that magnificent temple, He gave the prophet Ezekiel, who was among the exiles in Babylon at the time, he allowed Ezekiel to have a spiritual vision to understand why God was about to discipline his people this way. So we find in the the book of Ezekiel that God took this prophet to Jerusalem in a vision. And it's recorded in chapter 8, verses 7 through 16, 
what he saw when he arrived there at the temple. In this passage, we read this, that Ezekiel is writing. It says, so he brought me to the door of the temple court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Keep in mind, this is the walls of the temple, Solomon's temple. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, one of the foreign deities. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Ezekiel was having a real hard time with the idea that God would let a foreign pagan king move into the land, the promised land, and destroy this temple and the city that God had chosen. He had a really hard time with that. So God said, Ezekiel, let me take you to Jerusalem, and I want to show you what I see so you understand why I'm about to do all this. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, as I said, and after that, Jerusalem was destroyed. He took thousands, thousands of Jews into slavery in exile in Babylon where they stayed for the next 70 years. But in 536 B.C., the empire of Babylon was conquered by Cyrus the Persian. He moved in and conquered the city of Babylon. And at that time, it was amazing because the Jews brought the book of Isaiah to Cyrus the Persian and said, Cyrus, did you know that, you're, that God named you before you were born? And it says here in our scripture that when you seize power, you control the world. At that point, you will allow us to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild our temple. It was written in the scriptures by Isaiah long before Cyrus was even born. He looked at that and says, well, I guess I better do it. And so he did. He let the Jews return under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And he said, all right, go back and build your temple. In fact, I'll make a decree that you have all the materials and money you need to do it. What an incredible thing. So Zerubbabel went back to the land of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem with the exiles. And he began to fashion the second temple. Now, the second temple, uh, they laid the foundation for this temple, and those who returned with Zerubbabel were two groups. Some of the people that returned with him were old men who had been in exile through the whole 70 years, and, and they had seen Solomon's temple. They knew what it looked like, and when they saw how small the foundation of the second temple was, they wept. 
the young men who were born in Babylon, they saw this temple foundation and they were thrilled. They thought, oh, this is so wonderful. We have a temple again. Much smaller, but nevertheless a temple. It was sort of a meager image of what once had been. But God says, no, you go ahead and, and build this temple. In fact, he even promised them that the glory of the latter temple would be greater than the former, even though it's smaller. Hmm. Probably because it's not about the temple. It's about the one who lives in the temple. Amen. So this temple continued to stand until King Herod came along shortly before Jesus was born. Herod the Great. He was not a very popular king in Israel. So to curry favor with the Jews, he decided, you know what? I know what's most important to these Jews. I will build the temple. I will rebuild this temple. I'll make it a glorious temple that will rival the one that Solomon built. And so as you look at our passage in John chapter 2, uh, we see that he had been engaged in a massive building project for 46 years and it still wasn't completed when Jesus shows up on the scene to inspect the second temple. And when he finds, and when he shows up there, it's amazing. What does he see? It's a marketplace. No wonder he overturned the money changers' tables. So we need to pause right here and stop and evaluate this and think really carefully about what's going on. In Ezekiel's day, God saw that the first temple was profaned by the leaders and people who worship pagan gods. And it turned their backs on God. Now, 600 years later, God shows up to inspect the second temple only to find that it had been turned into a marketplace. No wonder Jesus was filled with righteous indignation. No wonder there was zeal for God's house. Because there were things that once again were interfering with the people's ability to worship the God who that house represented. It was supposed to be a place of worship, prayer, and communion with God. So it now makes sense why Jesus fashioned this whip and chased them all out. It's interesting, though, that this was not the last time or the only time Jesus did that. In fact, if you look further in the gospel record in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 14, you'll notice that just before Passover... After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the final time before he's betrayed and crucified, and he does exactly the same thing. The merchants had returned. They set up shop once again. Listen to what it says in, this, in Matthew 21. He says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. What a contrast. The religious leaders were using their religious position to enrich themselves. It was a place of merchandise, and Jesus said, this is not what it's supposed to be. It's not, you've made this thing into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where healing can happen. But, so this was the last straw. If you're going to get the religious leaders upset with you, just overturn their tables. This was the last straw. 
It simply wouldn't do to have God keep showing up at their temple and making a mess of things. So they arrested Jesus, put him to death. They had their temple all right, but they had just cast God out of their place of worship. It was nothing more now than an empty shell. When Jesus died on the cross, the scripture says the veil was torn from top to bottom. And God left the building. He no longer resided in a temple built with hands. There, was, there were no more barriers. That temple that Herod built stood for another 40 years. In 70 AD, the Romans had had enough of the rebellious Jews. They were an incorrigible people, could not be governed. And so there was a rebellion that started about 69 AD. The Romans marched in and said, we are done with these people. They slaughtered tens of thousands once again, the city of Jerusalem was leveled and the temple in the city was burned with fire. It was utterly destroyed and it still remains to that, that way. There is no temple in Jerusalem to this very day. The Jews have no temple. Because God now dwells in the third temple. It's interesting that before Stephen was stoned to death... He was arrested by these same religious leaders in Jerusalem. He gave this incredible sermon. It's a masterful sermon. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 50. I want to read just a portion of it. Because in this sermon, he's trying to prove from the Jews' own history that God does not dwell in temples built with hands. He now dwells in a different kind of temple. Stephen said, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he'd seen. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? How are you going to create a building big enough to house the infinite, almighty God, creator of the universe? What house can you build for me? The Apostle Paul understood this. And he said also that God no longer resided in buildings constructed by men. In Acts 17, 24, he said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the question is, so where does God reside now? Where is the third temple? Fortunately, the New Testament gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Please keep in mind, the Corinthians were an idolatrous people. They worshiped all kinds of idols there in that town. And God said to them, through Paul, it says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That would mean that every one of you here is now the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God isn't living in a house. He doesn't live in buildings. He isn't in a place where there's stained glass, fancy 
windows and great elaborate structures. You won't find God there. God says, I want to dwell in you, in the midst of you as an individual. Remember what happened when the first temple was constructed? After it was all built and consecrated, dedicated, Solomon prayed, what happened? Two things happened. First of all, fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice on the altar, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Let me suggest to you that that's exactly what happened when you became a Christian. The glory, presence of Almighty God moved in. It's fascinating to discover that God did something very familiar when the third temple was set up where the bodies of men and women who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior opened their hearts to him. Ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4 describes the scene. Get this. This is amazing. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wow, that's amazing. In the first temple, in the tabernacle, you saw the cloud. You saw that glory of God. The word cloud or the, the word breath, wind, and spirit are all the same in Hebrew and Greek. The rushing mighty wind. That was the manifest presence of the Spirit of God in the room and it was just filling those disciples, the 120 in the upper room. Fire came down and consumed the sacrifice on Solomon's altar. And now fire was resting upon, as it were, the heads of these living sacrifices. Isn't it interesting? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. God wants to take this temple and make it a holy place where his presence dwells. Why? So people who see your temple can see God and realize that he is God after all. They see the glory. They see his light. They see his life in you. And they say, how come you're so different? What's going on there? Well, Jesus moved in. He now lives in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the Bible, that fire is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of refinement through testing. It's a symbol of God's holiness as well. So if you put these word pictures together, the wind and the fire, this incredible moment when God took up residence in the third temple, we notice that the apostle Peter understood the spiritual significance of that moment. He was there. And he writes in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 2, 11, he writes these words, As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. 
As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Listen now. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you realize those are the same things God said to Israel? You're a holy nation, a chosen people. You're special to me. Why? So that you can declare my praises. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What Peter is saying is when you become a Christian, when you invite Jesus, isn't that what we say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart? Isn't that an amazing thing? You're inviting Almighty God to take up residence in your temple. You're a movable tent, and God wants to go camp out with you. That's what it is. That's why the tabernacle, they, it moved. It followed the cloud wherever the cloud went. That was a picture of you. You're the tent. Peter said, before he died, I'm about ready to put off this tent. He's speaking of his martyrdom. I'm about ready to die. This tent, going to fold it up. I'm going to go be with God. Whew. Almighty God wants to live in you of all things. And when he does, you become a holy, consecrated temple in which God chooses to dwell. What an amazing, fitting message as we prepare for Easter and Passover. Jews around the world, they're about to enter that same Passover season where Jesus overturned the tables twice. Christians will be remembering the final week of Jesus' life and his resurrection from the dead. And so as I was preparing this message, I really felt impressed by the Lord that he wants to ask us all just one question. As we approach this Easter season, this question that I believe the Lord wants us to all to consider is this. If Jesus were to come to your house, your temple, and examine the spiritual condition of the temple of your life, what would he find? In Solomon's day, that temple was filled with profane images on the walls, sinful things done in secret in the dark. It's given over to idolatry, immorality. Ezekiel saw that the people had turned their backs to God and were looking east, worshiping the sun, the host of heaven, and the creation rather than the creator. In Jesus' day, the temple was no better. It was no longer a place of prayer where people could commune with God and worship him. It had turned into a marketplace where people were making money. God's desire has always been to dwell in the midst of us, to share life together. He's always wanted to be with us. And that's why he continually knocks on the door of our hearts. If you hear my voice, if you open the door, I will come in to you and we will have fellowship together. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't barge his way into your life? He asks for permission. He asks your permission. Can I take up residence in you? Can we share life together? The thing that's always amazing is when we open the door and we respond to him and say yes, 
Jesus is always pleased to move in and accept our invitation. We need to understand, though, that when he moves in, we will become immediately aware of the things in us that are unlike him. And the Holy Spirit will be faithful to point out those things. Things that defile God's house. What are some examples of things that defile God's house? Pride, selfishness, unforgiveness, a rebellious attitude, maybe treating people in unloving ways. Those are things that grieve the Holy Spirit. The scripture says of the Lord Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is jealous over you. He has a holy jealousy for every one of us. Like a man has for the woman he is betrothed to marry. This is why the Holy Spirit will be grieved if we give place to immorality, idolatry, covetousness, greed, gluttony. We choose to love the things of this world instead of loving God. And like the prophets of old, the Holy Spirit will call us to repent and return to our first love relationship with God. Before I go one minute further, I need to say something that all of us need to hear. The Lord spoke to this to my heart Friday afternoon. And he said, make sure and tell my people I am not mad at them. Amen. You see, if things have come into the temple of your life and they're not all that they should be, please understand God is not mad at you. But he has a holy, righteous jealousy for you because he doesn't want anything to stand between us and him. And those things that make it impossible for us to connect and commune with him, those are the things that he has a, a zeal about. Those are the things that he wants to take a whip and chase them out of our lives. Do you hear me on that? God isn't mad. In fact, God loves you that much that he's willing to pursue you to those lengths. So if we're honest about it, I think we all have some spring cleaning to do, spiritually, spiritually speaking. I think it's a good time at spring. Passover is only a couple weeks away. Easter is only four weeks away. Good time to do some house cleaning, spring cleaning. Did you know that the, according to the law of Moses, that once every year, the priests and Levites were required to go into the tabernacle and temple and do a thorough cleaning from top to bottom? And they had to consecrate and rededicate everything in the tabernacle and temple once every year. Because God said, I don't care how careful you have been to do everything right. You still defiled the place just in your ignorance. So do a cleaning. Do a house cleaning at least once a year. Make sure that it's all clean and fresh. I think as we're approaching this Easter season it's, a season, it's a good practice for us to do the same. Jesus did something very unusual at the Last Supper. I want you to see this image with me. They're in the upper room. They're having their final Passover meal, the Last Supper. Jesus knows he's being betrayed by Judas. After supper is ended, Jesus rises from the, the meal, and he girds himself with a towel, and he does something very, very unusual he began to wash the disciples' feet. When it was Peter's turn to have his feet washed, Peter felt it was beneath the Lord to wash his feet like a servant, and so he said this to Jesus. 
You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Okay, at that point, Peter says, whoops, I made a big mistake. Okay, wrong answer. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Why those two body parts? Okay, he's talking about something spiritually unclean. Okay, it's not just my feet. He's not talking about feet washing here. Oh, he's talking about something spiritual. Let's see, my hands have done bad things and I've thought bad thoughts. I need that cleansed too, Jesus. Listen to his response. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean and you are clean. Hmm. What's he saying? When you become a Christian... You are completely clean, holy in God's sight, and nothing will ever change that. But there is, a, there is a part of you that comes in contact daily with the world. It's your feet. And our feet, spiritually speaking, just get dirty by walking through this world. You hear and see profane things. We are tempted and give in to sin. We permit unholy things to invade the holy of holies in our hearts where God's spirit resides. Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. That's a humbling thing. That God, our Savior, would want to wash our feet and cleanse us and keep us clean. So this is a good season for us to do what Jesus promised us in 1 John 1, 8 through 9. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And would you say this next phrase with me? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is still washing feet, but he's asking our permission. Would you let me wash your feet? There's stuff here that has come in contact with the world. Let me, let, me, let me wash your feet. In a moment, our prayer team, they're going to take their place around the sanctuary, and they would love to spend time with you in prayer. Our worship team will rejoin us and lead us in a time of reflection and worship. And as they do, I want to encourage you to listen to what the Holy Spirit has maybe said to you this morning. Maybe there's some things in your heart and life, in your temple that God wants to sanctify, cleanse. And he's asking your permission. Will, will you just humble yourself and let me do that? Will you confess to me where you need to be washed? Please don't allow your pride to stand in the way of letting Jesus wash your feet. So I want to say this again. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of invitation. My prayer for all of us here this morning is that every one of us in this room, when you leave this sanctuary, you will leave a little lighter, a little less burdened, feeling like you just had a spiritual bath that Jesus washed you. That's what I think the Holy Spirit wants to do with us today. During that time of worship, if you want to just as an act of submission and humility come and kneel before, before this altar here, this platform, you feel free to do that. However you need to respond, please respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Don't harden your heart. Let's pray.
So we're just in an attitude of prayer right now and our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I do want to ask this question. If you're here tonight, today, this morning, and you've never received Jesus, you've never opened the door of your heart to him, and you've heard how much God wants a relationship with you, and by lifting your hand, you're saying, yes, Pastor Al, I, I want to start that relationship with God. I need him in my life. And so would you just lift your hand if that's you. You want to receive Christ, receive his forgiveness. I just want to encourage you. Just lift your hand so I can see you and I want to pray with you about this decision to receive the Lord into your life. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the holy work that you desire to do in our lives. That you love us, Jesus. That you desire not only to live in this third temple, this temple of our bodies, but to fill us with the cloud of your presence. That that fire of your holiness would come and consume us as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the amazing thing that you, the Almighty God, would love us that much. Pray, Lord, that we'd just be able to open our hearts and respond to you as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.